0: One of the things that I found helpful is to try to understand the difference between what they're asking for and the informational need.
1: For right. sure, right. and that one hundred percent. Give me an example to respond to. Like, give me something that somebody had, might ask. I had for, a gig. The guy yeah. kept
0: demanding or He kept demanding Gantt charts, and all I was able to say was, uh, "We don't. We have burn down charts." And it took me a couple weeks right. to figure out. Well, he can't use a burn down chart. He doesn't want to learn how to read it. It right. doesn't answer his questions. So I started to ask him, like, "Well, who asks you about the project? Or what information do you need to make what kind of choices?" Because mm-hmm. I was able to come up with reports that would take the output of a Scrum team, give them to a waterfall executive in a way that he could consume them and make choices from that information. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. I'm Dave Pryor. I'm here with Mike Kottmeyer. Mike, thanks for making time at the end of your Friday afternoon. Happy to do it, man. What a way to go into the weekend. Get to talk to you. (laughs) And we're going to talk about something that came up on a call the other day that I I was really excited to hear this conversation happen and to know that this is something that we're doing. Um, It's something that I used to do a long time ago, but not with this level of rigor. And we're going to explore, I don't know, what are you calling it? How are you referring to it?
1: Well, let let me give a little bit of backstory. So what, what we're talking about is in the space of like stakeholder management, right? And... And you know I, I think we all fall into this category sometimes you know whether I'm a consultant or whether I'm embedded in a company and it's like it's like we can see so clearly the change that needs to be made mm-hmm. and and when we go out and we try to to share that change with other people um, we get met with resistance mm-hmm. and and there's, there's a lot of, like, pejorative kind of things that we'll throw at people. And, like, in the me, community, oh, that leader's too command and control. Or, like, that's the big one, all right? Or they're resistant to change, right? We kind of we throw these ad hominem kind of attacks at them. And, and what I find is that, is that most people in companies, like, aren't evil, right? They're not resisting change for no reason. Um, and so, and so one of the things that, that I think about a lot is, is when I have somebody who's resistant to change mm-hmm. or can't see the vision of what I want to do, like I ask myself, it's like, it's like, what are their goals? What are they, what are they trying to accomplish? Um, what do they see that I don't see yeah. or what can't they see that I do see? Um, You know, we ask ourselves the question a lot. is like, what does that person believe about the situation they're in? What do they value? And so, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, as I've as I've run leading agile and, you know, we have people come and go and clients come and go. um, I was just working with a lot of the teams and and I was just thinking about the idea that that, um, you know, maybe formalize some stakeholder management kinds of things in a way. That that builds that um, empathy perspective <laughs> into our our models a little bit and and, you know, and really start from a place of um, generosity with people in organizations. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, the classic example in our world is you'll have a development organization that wants to move to Agile and you'll have a pmo organization or a team of executives that are trying to do historical earned value or red green yellow status reporting or something and and a lot of times as practitioners we can fall into the trap of saying well we're agile you don't need that you come to the team room or you look in jira or you see a burn down or whatever and and especially in an early stage transformation where you have dependencies and org structure problems and the inability to produce a working test increment it, it's like that that strips a layer of safety off yeah so one of the things we've been doing across a lot of our accounts is is going through org charts and key stakeholders and going you know and again it's just stuff we've been doing for a long time it's like w- what we got taught as project managers 20 years ago yeah. and it's really just it's stakeholder management but doing it in a a very structured and disciplined way that focuses on having empathy for all the players first mm-hmm. and and trying to help everybody, and I, and I mean everybody, um, win as a result of the transformation, yeah. right? We don't want to find ourselves in a situation, and again, whether us as consultants or people that are in companies, we don't want to make a bunch of enemies, right? I mean, ideally, everybody wins. Everybody keeps their job. Everybody figures out how to be successful, and and you know, there's a lot of stuff in a, a again in an agile world, especially in early stage agile transformation, where um, where where there's certain things we can do to help people yeah. win. And, and what we hope is like if we have to build a construct in an organization to get an executive a report or to get a, a PMO some sort of status, you know, the idea is, is to, is to get them what they need in a healthy way, uh, a way that's um, consistent with agile values and principles and practices and operating models yeah. and help the organization see over time that maybe they don't need as much of that, you know, perceived control okay. as they did, you know? So that's, that's, that was the space of the converse, conversation we are having. Can I ask
0: some questions now? Yeah, please. I'll go on forever. I I was trying to find a way in. Um, I know, I know, I know. I I could talk on this for days. um, Just for that last point, like one of the things that I found helpful is to try to understand the difference between what they're asking for and the informational need.
1: For right. sure, right. and that 100. Give me an example to respond to. Like, give me something that somebody I had, might ask. I had your, a gig. The guy yeah. kept
0: demanding get. He kept demanding Gantt charts, and all I was able to say was, uh, "We don't. We have burn down charts." And it took me a couple weeks right. to figure out. Well, he can't use a burn down chart. He doesn't want to learn how to read it. It right. doesn't answer his questions. So I started to ask him, like, "Well, who asks you about the project? Or what information do you need to make what kind of choices?" Because mm-hmm. I was able to come up with reports that would take the output of a Scrum team, give them to a waterfall executive. In a way that he could consume them and make choices from that information.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I you know my early revs of this stuff were probably twenty years ago now. Mm-hmm. At this point, I was working in a PMO at a company here in Atlanta, and we were doing some crazy things. Um, hundreds of people doing Scrum, kind of operating within a RUP framework. That was when we invented a lot of our um, program and portfolio management, investment tier level governance things, and. You know, the, at the end of the day, you know the finance group, uh, corporate audit and controls, the executives—they're stewards of the organization's money, mm-hmm. and the organization is making large investments, hundreds of people, and and at least in the model, the way it is today, they have fiduciary responsibility to deliver okay. the expected value for that revenue. And and so what they kind of want to see it's 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 really like rudimentary earned value. It's like we want to understand: um, have we, you know, for the amount of time that we've spent, are we burning money at the right rate? Yeah. For the yeah. amount of money that we've burned, are we have we made sufficient progress through the backlog? And and you know, it's what's hard is that is that an as an agilist we inherently know that requirements change mm-hmm. and we inherently know that, you know, there's a lot of planning that is waste. And, and so I always go back to like, you know, the last PIMBOK I read was PIMBOK three. So I might be out of, date a little, a bit out of date. A little bit out of date. What are we up to now? How it's many like PIMBOKs? Like do nine? we have? I don't
0: know. I got them all back. Oh, wow. Somewhere. Gosh. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's been at least minute, seven, remember. at least seven.
1: But, but we still talk about rolling wave planning and progressive mm-hmm. elaboration. I would imagine, right? And and so like it's so it's reasonable to say that you know we have this roadmap for the engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how we think the project's going to play out at a certain level of abstraction. You know, this is kind of the the sequence of release plans where we'd like right. to be in market. But we know that for the next release or two, we have more fidelity um, and specificity to that than we do for stuff that's a year out. Yeah. Got it, mm-hmm. and we know that at like a sprint or two or three ahead, we have even more specificity. For the current sprint, we should have a lot of specificity, mm-hmm. and and we can start to extrapolate through velocity um, at the team level, through throughput at the program and portfolio level, where we're at against release objectives. We we have the ability because of the way we decompose work to make. Um, trade-offs um, maybe at the user story level and, and still deliver the capability that's in uh, the epic um, and so and so there's ways of telling that story that resonate with an executive mm-hmm. to start right but sometimes we take like the extreme position where we go well we don't know everything so we don't want to communicate anything. Mm-hmm. And and so a lot of organizations that try to adopt agile find themselves in a place where the teams are just operating sprint to sprint yeah and and that's untenable.
0: You can't run the like business two were, weeks at a time.
1: Yeah, you can't you can't fund millions of dollars and just say hey you know we delivered this sprint and 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 I had a situation a couple months ago where I was was on the phone with this executive and. And, you know, the the organization wasn't at a sufficient level of maturity to really be able to deliver what he needed. Mm-hmm. Right. Tremendous amount of chaos, way too much in the backlog, technical debt, dependencies, understaffed. And and so and so what the the, the organization was doing with our support was was starting to stabilize the system and be able to say, we could say, like, these are the things we were working on and these were the things in the backlog, but it was very difficult to get, like, a longer view. Mm-hmm. And, and so the conversation was, it's reasonable for that executive to want that information. Yeah. It's reasonable, right? Because they have fiduciary responsibility to their stakeholders. and But we can also be transparent about what we know and what we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we can say that this three year long initiative, you know, it's budgeted for this. Right. This is the roadmap. This is how we think it's going to play out. And then as we deliver sprint to sprint or feature to feature, epic to epic, yeah. um, we can start to measure progress and we can start to communicate the trade offs we're making. Yep. We can start to communicate that we're delivering slower than we expected or faster than we expected. And And so so getting back to the whole stakeholder management thing, um, it's like like we have to respect that that person in the state that they're in today Mm -hmm. needs that information to be safe. And, And especially if the agile teams or the groups of agile teams, the programs or portfolios or whatever if they're not if they haven't historically done a good job of being able to commit sprint to sprint yeah. or to deliver value release to release there's not a lot of trust in the organization right. and so and so what starts to happen is when we get into this mindset of like well it's agile in name only or it's like we're like what will happen is that the project managers will will revert to the well, they, the controls yeah. that they're familiar with yeah. right um, so it's our job as the change agents, or it's the, the, you know, the Agilists in the organization's job to say, I hear you, and this is what we can produce now. And, and, and I'm telling you, it's like Agilists can out-earn value a, a traditional project plan, especially in software most of the time, yeah. right? Because we're being really real about progress. And so so this conversation that we launched internally was, what can we do systematically with our clients and the ecosystem of stakeholders that we interact with? And we interact across the board. It's almost never just dev teams. And we have, obviously, product, business relationship management, infrastructure operations, security, the business side of things, the financial um, controls, right? Right. In an early stage, what we want to do is we want to use agile to build systems Mm -hmm. that get people to kind of relax and trust what it is we're doing. Okay. And then over time, as the system becomes trustworthy, we can we can educate the system on how they can exploit. The, the new iterative and incremental delivery capacities, and, and maybe at some point start to change business strategy, okay. start to change how they go to market, start to change how they make and meet commitments to their customers. That was why the whole base camp thing that that we uh, started talking about eight or nine years ago was a big deal. Yeah. And in my head, at like a real simple level, it's a little bit more nuanced than this. At a real simple level, we really talked about like in an early stage transformation, you're operating within the constraints of the existing org. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to. Um, on the other extreme base camp five, I would love to have um, a team, an organization full of small agile teams that were making decisions close to the customer and everything was totally emergent. Right. But but there's conditions that have to be created within the organization for that level of trust to be exhibited. Yep. Um You there's there's an influence game with your customers. They have to trust that you're going to do what you say and provide value. And and they have to trust that the system's gonna work for them. Yeah. And and you can't you, more often than not in anything of non-trivial size, you, you can't go straight to the end. And and I think a lot of us, even our consultants sometimes, we see so clearly what is possible. Right. We wanna go straight to what's possible. And and our whole methodology is around meeting the organization where it is and um helping everybody win and so in a
0: sustainable way like so that you're not going to injure yourself we haven't talked about running in a while but (laughs) but you're that's because i don't run much anymore but you're not just going to go run a marathon you're going to help them get go at a slower pace but more intentional pace to get there yeah um i want to ask you about one other thing with this so one of the things that came to mind in in talking about how we're analyzing the different people in the org chart and trying to understand them and, and create educated hypotheses about them. Um, mm-hmm. It's a thing that I always play back in my head. Whenever I run across somebody in an organization, I'm like, they're the enemy. Like they're the problem. They're yeah. the. Then yeah. I stop and I remember, okay, you could retell the entire story of Star Wars and make Darth Vader the hero because <laughs> he, in his mind, he's the good guy, right? So Yeah, you want to hear – can I, you yeah. want to pull, pull a fun thread? Okay. So,
1: so Disney had this experience. I want to say it was called the Galactic Star Cruiser. Okay. They'd invested a tremendous amount of money into this thing. It's stupid expensive to go. Like, and in, in, it's not the kind of thing you do all the time, right? So, you don't go to Galactic Star Cruiser every year. It's like a cruise. The metaphor of it is like a cruise that you're um doing in space okay it's really neat it was a really cool experience i took my uh took my brother and his son and a friend of mine there last year right before it closed so i was really glad we got the experience but to your point the the whole thing like there's this whole story woven in and you know the the star cruiser gets boarded by um it's not the empire anymore or the first order right so the first order and this is when you guys were dressed
0: up like star wars
1: yeah, yeah. 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 Like we, we did cosplay yeah, yeah. the whole thing. Right. It was crazy. But to your point, what was really, really cool is that the way they played it, it's like people, participants like us legitimately sided with the rebellion or the first order, but everybody did it for good reasons. Yeah. Everybody did it because they thought they were right. Yeah. And, and it had some kind of funny political overtones and different things that were, were interesting, but it was, it actually made your, it made your point, right? Yeah. Like nobody thinks they're evil. Even people that are on the evil side. Everybody's the hero in their own movie. Everybody thinks they're the hero in their story. Right. And so, and so if you don't have alignment between like the development organization and the PMO and the business, like everybody's doing what they think is right. To be able to
0: solve that problem, and what the system is telling them is the right thing to do.
1: Well, well, yeah, right. It's like if 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 I'm the CIO and I have fiduciary responsibility to my CEO to take these dollars and get a return, yeah. And the dev organization can't like give me any assurance of that, and so a PMO comes in and it and it does what a PMO does. <laughs> Now it makes assurance right room. Again, it's like we would love we would love every business to operate in an emergent exploratory way with their customers. And and to some degree, right, that is that is a goal in a lot of organizations. But but the challenge is, is that especially in a low trust early stage transformation where the c- conditions are not in place to be able to make and meet those kinds of commitments mm-hmm. or to be able to telegraph progress or to be able to educate the organization on how to manage tradeoffs, mm-hmm. how to simplify, right? How to put minimally viable products in the market. Yeah. Um, then then what happens is that is that you have players in the organization that are doing what they believe is right, but they're at odds with each other. Right. And so this exercise that we were going through with this particular client is we were we were looking at all the stakeholders. We're literally developing like personas and creating almost like um, persona level, like business canvases kind of a thing and really looking through like. Like how does each person become a hero in their own story, mm-hmm. and and I was telling a lot of like a lot of books. Like there's a book I read in my 20s called Pillars of the Earth by a guy named Ken Follett. Mm-hmm. It just made an impression on. me. I haven't read it in 30 years or something, but really made an impression on me. And I just recently attempted. I did. I didn't get through it. Like East of Eden, and what I was talking about is like sometimes these big epic novels they start off with, like 10 threads. Yeah. And everybody's like doing their King thing. Book, yeah. and yeah then over time they all start weaving together into an integrated narrative and and that was the metaphor i was using with the team it's like if we deeply understood the needs of all these players and we could articulate a system of delivery and a transformation plan and a way of interacting where everybody won like what would what would that story look like how would it progress over the next year or two um, like what would be the narrative? Like if I were going to make a movie out of it, what would be the storyline? Yeah. What would be the arc? Crescendo, right. The resolution. And, and so that's how I was trying to get everybody to think. And what's fascinating, what's fascinating is that like, is that everybody understands this on some level. Right. Um, and, and I think a lot of people do it intuitively, but when you have, um, let's say you're, you're the leader of a transformation office or something inside your company, it's like certain things that you think are intuitive aren't necessarily intuitive <laughs> yes. to all the people you're working with they're just not right and so and so and it's so human nature to you know we tend to be tribal and right. we tend to locally optimize and we tend to think about our, our stuff and we're the good guys and all the things we talked about right and and so we're just going through a really intentional exercise of of taking all the stakeholders, understanding. Their story and how what they need to win in their story, whatever
0: data we have, Um,
1: whatever information you have. Yeah, with whatever. Right. And how do we through our system of delivery, through our transformation models, through our change management tools, like how do we how do we weave a narrative of transformation and change? where we don't we don't have to demonize anybody and we don't have to make anybody else the bad guy yeah and and i get it right some people some people don't operate from a good place and and that's that that's true right and sometimes that's the reality but but to but, but to assume that out of the gate i think is dangerous i think i think people people are generally trying to do what they think is the right thing
0: for their company so i had this teacher one time who said to me that every I was complaining about the people that shop at Walmart in their pajamas at like four o'clock in the afternoon (laughs) or Walmart people. And, and she said, you have to remember that every person you meet is doing the very best they can with every single moment. So like, even, even the person, like they might look like they have bad intentions for whatever their conditions are. We don't know their story. They're, they're making the best possible choice. Um, but it's hard to remember. that.
1: Yeah. And especially when you're trying to lead people to change, Mm -hmm. Right, and you're you're trying to get them to do something that's different and uncomfortable. Um, they're trying to operate in a new way. I had this really powerful experience. My last corporate job, um, before I went to go work for um, Version One, um, I worked I worked in an ecosystem with this lady. I've, I'm sure I've shared this over the years. Um, and and it was interesting. It's and this is probably somewhat made up, but it was a cool storyline. And it's just so difficult to get her to change. Right, her priorities were different. She had become a VP over 25 years doing a bunch of stuff. And, and, you know, in my head at the time, you know, I was probably all of like 35 at the time. And in my head, she was just evil and resistant and difficult and just awful. She was just awful. Right. Yeah. And, and, and she kind of was right. But, but, um I actually somehow found out that I had a really good buddy from a previous job that lived next door to her. and, I don't know how it came up, but I heard something about her story. And, and it was like, and this is an example I use all the time. I have a few other ones, but this is like my favorite. And, and I learned, I didn't know anything about her personally, but like, um, she was a primary breadwinner in the family. Her husband was an entrepreneur, was, was, is kind of uneven, right? His business hadn't really taken off. She lived in a really nice house in a really nice neighborhood, had kids in college. And, And I just had this moment of realization that, that, um, that when I was suggesting that she change, you
0: what I was doing her her life.
1: was threatening her life, yeah. right? And because I was asking her after 25 years to do something that, that she might not be great at and it might risk her position or it might expose her or something. And in, in that moment, I just, it just gave me just a, a new empathetic lens yeah. on what, why people show up the way they do um and and they're usually not stupid sometimes <laughs> they're usually not stupid and they're usually not evil um and so sometimes if you can and we don't know what they're under- responding
0: to what trauma they're responding to when they are yeah happen.
1: sure oh, under, oh yeah I didn't get even getting like trauma and identity issues and ego and yeah. sense of self I right? mean that's a whole nother level of exploration um, but yeah, right? So it's like when you approach it from the standpoint everybody's trying to do the best they can do, and they have all these drivers that you're probably never going to be exposed to. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just a really big believer in, in – and this is what we're trying to like codify, right? It's like we do it, but we're trying to codify it into a methodology and into an approach where, where we create a shared understanding of that ecosystem of human beings mm-hmm. – and when we approach and make recommendations, we do it in a way. Now, you might say, "Well, is that disingenuous, Mike? because you know at the end of the day, we're not going to need a PMO. maybe, maybe not, right? It depends upon the complexity of the organization. but here's the offer, right There's not a human being in the world in a PMO that wants to run around and chase after people for status reports, <laughs> ask them to the percent completes, put red yellow. I, I just don't think maybe, maybe it's I'm sure one guy exists, right? but but like what I, what I'll tell people sometimes it's like just imagine a world where your interactions with the dev team were healthy Mm -hmm. um they were able to do what they said they were going to do the the reports that you put together were actually accurate they actually gave the executives the ability to make the trade-offs that they need to make we were able to establish the reporting requirements we were able to educate them over time on a new way of operating that gives business more ability to be successful like if we could create that like, what might that free you up to do? You know, yeah. you're not chasing down people and doing estimates and mind numbing, like uh, just all the stuff that I,
0: I which would say project It's a challenge, too, right? because if I mean, it's the same thing with Scrum Masters, if the team is delivering, what the hell is a Scrum Master supposed to do? And my response, like, that's when you really have to dig in and figure out how to add the value.
1: Well, well, yeah. So organizations are are never perfect. Right. I mean, there's always something to solve. Yeah. And, and, and so what the offer that I make to people, and and we're kind of in this specific context, right? But the offer that you make to that group is like, how could you operate more strategically? How could you add more value? Because it's really difficult to do like pure play Scrum across an entire organization. I mean, you have infrastructure, and you have the business, and you have marketing plans, and you have all kinds of different stuff. Like, I would rather operate in a world where product development was like a machine, Mm -hmm. you know, delivering against release plans and roadmaps and able to stabilize velocity and making me commitments within constraints and make appropriate trade-offs and all these different things. And then like, take, take the product delivery organization just out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And now let's project management, the synchronization of all the other parts of the organization. Right. I mean, that's what you, that would be a more strategic view of it. You know? And and I and again, I've I've said for years, it's like Scrum did away with project managers, but it didn't do away with, with project management. It just redistributed. Yeah. It, right. So project management, I believe, is essential. I think understanding how to do project management is essential. Yeah. Do I need a scorekeeper running around checking boxes and making sure deliverables are produced? Not so much. Like it, there's there's different ways of accomplishing that yeah. that achieve the same goal, right? Yeah. But, but again, and, and and again, sometimes with us, usually we have a broad enough span of influence and control that, you know, we're not just operating with just the dev team, but occasionally we are. And so it's easy to align with your customer to see the world that they, the way they see it. Yeah. Or if I'm in a PMO or in a transformation office internally, it's easy to see the world through my lens. Um, but again, I it, you know, I always go back to the, some of the Covey stuff. It's like, I'm a huge believer and it's like we have to be able to think win-win. We have to. We we have to create an environment where everybody gets to be the hero on their own So I
0: want to ask you, this was something that came up on the call that you kind of started to talk about and then the the topic changed Um, just to to lay some of this stuff out for people. So we're going to form hypotheses about who the individuals are. Uh, We're going to test those as we get to work with them to try to see Mm -hmm. how close we are or off the mark. And as this thing evolves, we're going to be able to realize there's going to be a point when this person is going to feel an incredible amount of tension or stress because we've changed something that just upsets their whole apple cart. And the thing that I wanted to ask you about towards the win-win side is would we – be able to go to that person and say, listen, there's going to be this moment later on where you're going to want to like set us on fire. And when you want to do that, here's why that's happening. And here's what <laughs> comes after that, because then you could show them the future state where the tension is resolved and how we get to win-win Would that. Do you think that that would be a way to create safety for them? It's
1: probably not the lens that I would take. Okay, It's probably not the perspective I would take by default, Okay. Right? Um, what I would look for is, is I would want to deeply, and again, we're just using the PMO and the dev team mm-hmm. as a, as a, a common example, right? Um, it happens across, it happens across between product organization and the dev teams, you know, aspects of the business or DevOps and, you know, in delivery or security and delivery. And it's, it's, it's all over the place, right? So, so what I, the offer that I would want to make is I'd want to deeply understand the actual problem that that group is trying to solve, like the the questions that they need to
0: answer. What the PMO's core purpose is.
1: Yeah, and what I would offer is a better, more efficient way to get them what they need. Because when they ask for status reports or they ask for documents or ask for percent completes or ask for regular grains, those things are proxies for what they need. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that's available for them to ask that gets them the ability to answer the questions they need to answer. And if I can offer them an alternative way to get the questions, it's actually easier for them and creates okay. uh, alignment in the organization. Yeah. Like I would like to get to a – I would like to be in a place where I'm communicating gain rather than loss. Okay. Like I'd rather say – yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You got my Right. Yeah. I'd rather, yeah. So, what, so what Dave was just referencing was, um, that was a long time so ago. A lot, times, a lot of times in agile, what we do is we, we tell people, we walk into like, you know, we say we're going to do agile and we're going to be able to tell you all the things we can't do. Yeah. And, and it's like, that's language of loss, right? Who wants to, who wants to sign up for, well, just out of the gate, I'm getting less than I want. Um, But if we can, if we can tell a story that's, that's, How do I get more of what I want more effectively? Um, You know, and sometimes there's a trade-off there, right? And sometimes it's like, um, I get all of the top-level objectives, but I make some trade-offs in the small. It's all minimally viable product thing, yeah. right? Like I get to be in market. I get to sell. I get to do all the different things I need to do to satisfy my customers. But I'm making some trade-offs in the small over time to get more of what I want in the large. Okay, And, and that's a language of gain. And so with most people, what I want to try to do is I want to create a language of gain where, where I offer them a better way to get more of what they want. It might be a different way it might create a little bit of discomfort that's probably fair right change always is a little uncomfortable right but if i can show them clearly how through the operating model through the transformation through all these things that that they can see that path yeah you know it's you know it's a, it's a different it's a different story right so that would be the angle that i would attempt so, to approach it from
0: all right i'm going to i'm going to just say this cuz it's stuck in my head from what you were saying okay. so if yeah, this was the yeah. movie taken and your daughter's being oh, kidnapped. Wow. Okay. Instead of you as okay. Liam Meeson saying you're going to get taken, you're going to say you're going to get rescued. <laughs> wow um, I, I,
1: I i that's a big context jump there dave um well maybe yeah we can cut yeah. that part out um yeah okay no keep no keep it in keep it in keep it in, keep it in. it's it's it, but, it, that's what makes these conversations fun
0: rather because the thing i was i was wondering like what i say to the pmo you're going to get to a point where you're all going to feel like your jobs are disappearing or you can't do your jobs and rather than that talk to them about what is okay, their mission
1: yeah, let me rephrase that. Yeah. So their their jobs are going to get – they're going to feel like their jobs are going yeah. away. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, well. so if if I have a system that is so well run that it makes their job easier, then what that does is that frees them up to do more strategic things. All right. Perfect. Right? Great example. Um, think about testers, right? If I was a testing organization, would I want the organization to produce more defects – And more remediation opportunities so that so that I always had things to test or would you rather um, would you rather create defect free software that that didn't require that kind of testing? That's the whole play behind automation. Right. Um, You're still going to need people that set up automation and you're still going to need validation and you're still going to need like all of that mechanism. You're still going to need to have assurance um, you know, where the rubber meets the road is like, do, will I need the same number of project managers? Will I need the same number of testers? Like, you know, probably not. Okay. Right. Um, but, you know, but it's in the best interest of the organization to have defect free software yeah. than it does to have armies of testers and rework and delays and all those things. Right. So, so it's tough. Right. And, and I mean, there are times where an organization gets good enough at what they're doing where they don't need the orchestrators. But I'll tell you. Here's the other side. You've been around long enough to know this. I can remember, and this is like 53. This is like 25 year old stuff. Like I remember when we would like plan high level projects back in the day. You know what would he say? Like you know, for every six devs, you need two testers, yeah. <laughs> one business analyst, something Three like one. that. Well, it's like that pair of, that that's flipped at this point yeah. in some places. I mean, like the ratio of people that do requirements identification and testing to the actual number of developers in some organizations it's it's well, upside down. well probably cuz they
0: had it the other way before and they have so much technical debt to suffer through well, now
1: well sure right and so you know in the face of a organization that is out of control <coughs> but you have that visibility what else do you do other than assign project managers to it Right. Yeah. And so, so I do. Th- I so I, I don't think testing goes away. I don't think product management goes away. I don't think project management goes away. But but I do it think changes. there's opportunities to flip the ratios yeah. and, and change the world around it. Okay. And that's in the best interest of the organization as a whole. And, you know, but I get, right. I get that there's human stuff, so, right. But so you, you're still looking for win-win situations in these organizations where everybody gets a shot to win.
0: And, and at the individual level, we would be trying to understand who is this person? What do they need for their job? What do they need from a personal success level and create as, as much as possible opportunities for them to succeed as best they can within the context of all the other storylines that are running within this epic that you're telling.
1: Yeah. So, so like, here's the thing. So whether it be a testing organization or a business analyst organization or any other PMO, it's like we, I I think on some level, we can all agree that we want the system to be rational and we want the system to work. Mm -hmm. And the organization ultimately gets to decide, do they want to redeploy those human beings into other more higher value areas? That's the ideal. Do they want to decide to continue to invest in that capability? That's, that's the ideal. Um but but it's like I think if you if you're smart and you respect the people in the system and you try to help them win, like m- my job, leading agile's job, is to optimize that system so sure. your organization can produce software in a reliable structured way. The business or the leaders of that organization then then can decide how to best deploy their resources. And and by resources I mean dollars. Mm-hmm. But sometimes those dollars are used to hire people, right? Okay. And so I'm not being really careful yeah, here. Right? Yeah. I want to call people resources, right? I know my audience, right? But it's like, but it's like I'm not saying that everybody gets to sit in the same seat that they sat in on the mm-hmm. end of this, right? But then that's up to the organization to decide. Okay, I, I think it would not be healthy to say, well, and, and but I know organizations are like this. We want to preserve everybody's job as is. Yes. Um, you get into unionized environments, so and that's really a difficult thing, yeah. right? Because it's like, you know, you just can't change people's jobs or redeploy them or sometimes even let them go. It's it's complicated.
0: Okay. I, w- so, I want to test something okay. about this. Um, okay. You're talking about it from a consulting standpoint, understanding yeah. all the pieces to re-engineer the organization. I'm thinking about it cuz yeah. when I did it I was like embedded at a company, ran the PMO at yeah. a company, and I'm thinking about the executive yeah. leadership and I'm trying to understand this about all of them too so I can figure out how to position things. And it's very much about social engineering for me at that point. But not in a negative way, it's just creating opportunities. I just want to see if you can react to that at, at that individual yeah. level.
1: Yeah, so my you know so it's interesting, right? So Where I sit today, CEO, leading agile, um, people call us that are interested in doing this, right? Mm -hmm. And so the people that end up hiring us um, have bought into our methodology and our strategy and they want to do it this way, right? And we usually have span of control in the organization and access to the right leaders and can make the case and can make the changes that need to be made, right? Um, If I'm on the PMO side, It it gets it gets dicey, right? Because um, like the last time I was in that kind of a job, I had really good alignment with my boss and his boss and his boss, and and I was operating. But but to my earlier story about that person who lived next to my neighbor, we didn't have span of control over other parts of the organization. And you know, for me personally, I can be somewhat of an idealist, right, and a pragmatic idealist. But but you know, I was trying to do the right thing. But I was also young enough at that point, not mature enough in my career that I, I didn't really realize how to do all the stakeholder management. I didn't have all the messaging and storytelling and hadn't done 50, you know, uh, you were know, you, uh, you at were this you point, young right, enough
0: to know that your right thing was the one true right thing or old enough to know that there is no one true right thing? Well, we were pretty pragmatic at the time. Like we weren't pulling the scrum books and the
1: XP books and saying, thou shalt do this by the book, right? I mean, we were inventing methodology really, you know, we were really inventing the leading out of methodology back then. Okay. And, uh, and, you know, we were pulling out a lot of David Anderson's lean stuff and going through and reading Eli Goldratt stuff. And we were working with our governance things and we thought we had a pretty good model. And that model has since played out very well over the last 14 years for us and for our clients. Um, yeah. So I was probably arrogant enough to think that I was right, and bold enough and fearless enough to where I wasn't worried about pissing people off. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also naive enough at that age to think that um, if we pushed hard enough, we'd win. <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't really didn't really realize you know the implications <laughs> of building relationships and alliances yeah. during that time. You know, so so it's cool, right? I mean, it's like you know, I don't stay thirty five forever, right? At this Thank point, <laughs> um, yeah, for sure, right? And so, and so, yeah, right? So there's a little bit of um, there's give and take, and you know, one of the things that you know is part of our DNA as a company is just recognize that change is a process. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're in its incremental and iterative over time, and and I think that maybe gets into a little bit of what you know, I'm coaching in our organization and trying to instantiate via methodology is a is just a really broad sense that especially in the early stages, if we can't tell a story about how everybody wins and where they fit in and, and how they become the hero and how they, they're able to do their jobs better, yeah. inevitably, it requires some level of change. It's going to be <coughs> different. but But there's a difference between saying, I'm going to get you so much quality information that you can do your job as a PMO um, reliably, safely. It might be different, mm-hmm. you know. So it's not it's not totally risk free. Yeah. But you connect that dot and you say, you know, I remember back in the day, it was like, you know, we get these fire drills and it's like, oh, well, we need to see percent complete on I could pull backlog data, I could pull our roadmaps, I could pull this, I could understand our earned value, and we were doing pure play agile metrics at that time, mm-hmm. and I could and I could do that. Yeah. In hours, where most everybody else was spending weeks trying to pull together all the information because it, it was all manufactured, right? And it
0: wasn't well, right. Well, also because you understood yeah. project management and you understood Agile.
1: Yeah, it kind of helps. Yeah. So, you know, well, well again, right? Making, making my point here a little bit, it's like because I understand project management, because I understood Agile, and because I understood the needs of the product organization, I understood the needs of the business and the IT infrastructure, because I understood all those things, you can start to craft solutions Mm -hmm. where everybody wins right if you only know one slice of it and you don't know because again like like i'm telling you it's like project management is a thing managing time costs and scope is a thing it's very very few environments that don't have deadlines that have just open pocketbooks, right and 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 i would suggest the ones that do that can experiment like that have something that causes them to print money you know, and they're operating and doing all these other things as a way to extend the game and add value and grow and do different things. Like it's way easier for me to experiment and to do things open-ended when we're flush with cash and nobody's on the bench and everything's like doing really good. When you're operating within tight constraints and everything matters, it's really, really difficult to let go of control because the cost of failure is higher right so 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 much of this is driven by the economics of the
0: company that you're working in and what they're trying to achieve and too and this is going to be something that would be fairly could be fairly time consuming should, should involve more than one person before you go out and test these hypotheses right so it's not like, just like you it's like, not just you sitting by yourself in a room looking at the org chart saying oh this person's this and this person's this No, like what we're, what
1: we're hypothesizing for this one particular group that I was talking to, it's like, um, we're, we're doing so, so, you know, a little bit some people might not know about leading agile is that, you know, as we've grown over the last couple of years, we invested in a studio. And so probably a third of my team are technical at this point. And, and as things evolve in the marketplace, we're becoming much more of a technology forward organization. So you hear us talking about cloud and optimizing cloud costs and product modernization, things that would historically been in that area of base camp three for us. Right. So we've been building that organization for a few years and 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 it's starting to take off, which is pretty cool. We're doing some really neat stuff in that space. So we have a few clients that I would say are technology first clients and we have a few clients that are process first clients. Okay. And so this particular client um, that we were using as a case study is a more technology first client for us. And we're talking with their leadership team about doing some transformation work because we're in the middle of doing a lot of this modernization and security stuff and, you know, hitting all of the challenges of a non-transformed organization. Okay. So we're in that organization. We know the players. And so what I'm encouraging the team to do is to develop these hypotheses. And then how do we work with our primary stakeholders to begin to validate them? And then how do we actually work with all of the other adjacent parts to bring them in? And then how do we communicate a vision for them where everybody wins? And to do that, like what I'm I'm really trying to do is to take this particular team and really get them to have empathy. You know, most directors of development have similar kinds of problems. People that do security, similar kinds of problems. People that do release management, similar kinds of problems. Yeah. Unique business drivers, unique traumas, unique situations, all those different things. So you have to validate over time, but its we might not know some nuance, but we know a lot because um, it's just not all that and different company.
0: And even if the hypothesis is wrong, that's very valuable in itself because it shows you like, oh, this person isn't who we thought. I mean that was – there was one example of a person that you did a color code test on that oh, yeah. you had profiled a certain way and the test showed yeah. them to be the total opposite. And it was all because of the yeah. context of their relationship with their boss.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's um, – well, I mean that was that was who that person was. So, So for anybody who maybe doesn't listen to every single thing, Dave and I talk about – um, we do a lot with personality profiling inside leading agile, and we do it with our clients sometimes. We we profile everybody internally. And there's a few standard things we do, and then there's some things that we use internally that we don't use for hiring, and we don't use with clients, um, like Enneagram and Berkman and a few other things. But there's one thing that I just really like. It's based upon the same science and technology as the disk. Um, it's called color code. And I got turned on to it about five years ago, and it and it measures everybody, whether logical, emotional, controlling, or non-controlling. And a um, uh, little fun fact is, whenever I'm interested in doing something, I, I profile everybody around me that will submit to a test for me. Right? For my wife, my kids, um, my leadership team, things like that. And and I and I look at it and I go, um, does that help me understand the people that I know mm-hmm. better? And and I had this funny moment, and um, you know, all the women listening to us will probably laugh, but you know, my wife and I are opposites, like literally exact opposites on almost every personality profile we do. Um, I had my wife do an Enneagram the other day and she was laughing while she took it. She goes, she goes, I just know I'm answering every question the exact opposite of how you would answer this question. Right. (laughs) You know, we have enough self-awareness after 30 years. Right. And so, um, so anyway, um, my wife is, um, Uh, you know, red is logically controlling. That's me like 75%. She's um, emotionally controlling. And that's like powers, logical controlling, like, like intimacy and connection is emotional controlling. Like I want, I almost want, I demand in my relationships to feel good and to feel connected. And then there's logically non-controlling and emotionally non-controlling. So logically non-controlling is like, um, um, like following the rules and uh, emotional non-controlling is like having fun, right? So I'm red, yellow. My wife's blue, white. And um, <laughs> you know, to, to survive with me over the last thirty years, or at that point, twenty-five, you know, she knows that she, she just had come to the conclusion she can't lead with emotional arguments. And it's like I had it convinced in my head that my wife was um, logically non-controlling, and she is to a point, but she's more dominant emotionally non-controlling. And what she does to trick me. Um, I don't, she doesn't do it on purpose, but she tricks me all the time. I'm better at figuring it out now. Is it she's, she'll have emotional conversations with me through a logical lens. Right. So she's leading with facts and things like she thinks I want to hear, but. I have to go, oh, wait, we're having an emotional conversation. <laughs> and and that's and that's a really, yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic. And so when we first started to do this and I started to have these light bulbs go off, I'm like, oh, this is why I've been kind of messing things up for the last 25 years. Um, like there's sometimes I'd literally stop. Like I'd go down the path and I'd be like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, we're having an emotional conversation. I'm sorry. I totally missed it. And then I would literally like flip my brain and I'd start listening through an emotional lens, right? Um, you know, so we have um, – Yeah. So your story is we had a client that I think everybody on that account would have said was incredibly logically controlling. And then we did a personality assessment on him and he was um, incredibly emotionally controlling. So he was using logic and frames and rules and like it was really, really, um, you know, kind of difficult situation to work through. But what he was really trying to do was to protect the people around him. You know, and so and so, it was a very powerful realization with that team when we realized that you know, okay, what was he really trying to, to achieve? Yeah. Right? So one of the threads that we pulled is it's like you know, where would you know personality profiling play into this, and you know, could we make a could we make an educated guess on somebody's um, you know profile to kind of start to decide? And you know, when you start working with people, sometimes they'll they'll, they'll be willing to take that test, and and it gives you a lot of information. Yeah. But but like when I started realizing that my wife wasn't um, you know going through all this logical stuff to convince me, she was going through all this logical stuff to communicate an emotional concern about the kids or her parents or me or something like that. Yeah. You know, light bulbs go off, and so it just drives home the point that um, you know I, again, you, you mentioned it, it's trauma and its upbringing mm-hmm. and its personality and its experience and its role and its are you under stress or are you under duration duress. Um, you know, what am I trying to solve organizationally and the more empathy we can have for our stakeholders, the more we can understand what they want and put them in a position to win. Um, and we get the changes we want. We get the organizational um, characteristics we want, but then they get what they need to be successful in their job. It's just way better than trying to marginalize people and label them as difficult or resistant to change or command and control or whatever. Force them into a different space. Or, but the, but you can't usually force people, right? So you end up at war with them, right? You end up at war with them, and and I'll tell you as a as a consultant, those are the worst situations to be in. Is when we have stakeholders that have chosen sides, and it just gets it just makes everybody's job harder. When we don't approach each other with sufficient empathy and understanding.
0: And that's my chance to plug the art of war, which says that the the best battles are the ones that you win without ever fighting. So everything that Mike's talking about, if if you're anybody who's read the art of war, all of this ties directly back into that book and understanding the person you're negotiating with as well as yourself so that you can create the opportunities for people to, to achieve what they need to achieve. So what I think is fascinating
1: is that somehow I've, I've – what I've what I've also found is I'm very Jungian, Carl Jung, mm-hmm. in my thinking about things. Um, it's interesting how you get influenced by things without having directly experienced them. So <laughs> I've never read a Carl Jung book. But <laughs> apparently, like, everything I think about is right within his school of thought. Um, and so Dave kindly sent me a, a Kindle copy of that book. And uh, and so that will be my homework is to, um, is to yeah, read it. I think you're going to enjoy, enjoy it a lot. That. Yeah. I started reading like the introduction while I was on the plane. Cool. This morning, so. All right. It's cool. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, you're very welcome. I always appreciate these conversations. And it's funny. I guess people probably have this figured out. by now I have no idea where these are going to go when Yeah, I wasn't sure with
0: time. this. I did have a note not to bring up color coding <laughs> and I did it anyway. So, <laughs> ah, well. Yeah. Yeah, as long as we weren't talking about specific clients or accounts or name and names. <laughs> I think we did pretty good. I think we did pretty good. I think
1: we did pretty good too. Yeah, pretty good. Cool. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for doing this.